0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I'll be your host today. And today we're speaking with Betsy Parabo, Professor of Religious Studies at Western Illinois University. She holds a master's degree in Russian translation from the Monterey Institute of International Studies and a PhD in Religious Ethics from Yale University. Today we'll be discussing her 2017 book, Russian Orthodoxy in the Russo-Japanese War, from Bloomsbury Academic. Dr. Parabo, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Diana. I'm happy to be here. Great. So before we begin on your book, can you tell us a little bit about your research background and how you became interested in the role of Russian orthodoxy in the Russo-Japanese War?
1: Sure, thank you, and thanks very much for your interest in the book. Um, I have a somewhat unusual background for someone attempting to write a book that is at least in part a work of Russian history. I don't I'm not trained as a Russian historian. Um, as, uh, you just said, I have a master's degree in Russian translation. I, as an undergrad, I was an English major and Russian minor. Um, I worked as a translator for a few years out in California after I finished my Russian translation degree. And then I decided to go back and study religion. Um, and my plan at that time was not to go into orthodoxy. And in fact, I completed my PhD on, um, American perspectives, American Christian perspectives on the ethics of war, on just war theory. And the classes that I took at Yale and the work that I did for my dissertation were centered on Protestant and Catholic Christianity. We really didn't spend a lot of time on orthodoxy. So my dissertation, uh, which is called The Individual and in the Ethics of War, Christian and American Interpretations of the Use in Bello, which is a part of the just war theory, Um, was really focused on the United States and was really focused on Protestant and Roman Catholic perspectives on war. Um, So the dissertation was on the shelf for a few years. I published a couple of articles about it. Um, And as I was teaching, as I began teaching at Western Illinois University in 2005, I kind of lost track of what I wanted to do with that. But a few years later, I was teaching a course on religion and war. And I assigned a book by Brian Dazen-Victoria, which was called Zen at War. And this examined the relationship between war and religion in Japan starting in the 19th centuries. And there was a short section on the Russo-Japanese War. And I want to read you the quote that, that really got me going on this. So this is from a Buddhist priest, uh, Inoue Enro. And this was there were tensions between the two countries at that point. And he suggested that the tensions were related to conflict between Buddhism and Russian Christianity. And he said this, In Russia, state and religion are one, and there is no religious freedom. Thus, religion is used as a chain to unify the people. Therefore, when the Russian people see Orientals, they are told that the latter are the bitter enemies of their religion. It is for this reason that on the one hand, this is a war of politics, and on the other hand, it is a war of religion. If theirs is the army of God, then ours is the army of the Buddha. So that really got me interested in in, uh, thinking about the war in religious terms. And I thought, wow, this is something that I can use my Russian language background and my understanding of Christian just war theory and somehow tie it together.
0: Uh, now, in the beginning of the book, um, you talk about your research process and specifically about your use of the ecclesiastical journals. Um, can you talk a little bit about that process and were they widely read at the time?
1: Sure. Yeah. So um, the, my, my research process was really pretty haphazard. Um, I think my first move, because I had no idea whether research was being done in this field, and as I said, I, my, I don't come from a Russian studies background, was just to sort of poke around and see what I could find. Um, My first couple of sources were a collection of essays in Russian on the relationship between Russia and Japan. And there I found um, some articles on the war. And then I also found a diary by um, Mitrofan Srbiansky, who was a chaplain during the war. Um, My Russian wasn't great at that point. I was a little out of practice. So I went through and began to read things. Um, And then the real break was finding um, the diary of Nikolai of Japan, who was a missionary who moved to Japan in the 1860s and stayed there his whole life. So, so those were a couple of my major sources. Just sort of at the beginning of my research process, um, I went to the summer research lab at the University of Illinois uh, in 2010, and then again in 2015, and they were able to point me towards some theological journals from that period. Um, some that they had there, some that were available online. The two that um, I used the most were Tzerkodne um, which is the Holy Synod's official journal, and uh, Missionary Review. So I surveyed the whole run of the journal through um, the beginning of 1904 through late 1905. I have a few other journals that I used that um, I didn't get the entire runs of. Um, including one from the Kazan uh, Theological Academy, uh, one from the Moscow Theological Academy, so a variety of different journals like that.
0: Now, another thing you discussed in the beginning of the book, um, and you touched on this a little bit already, is the concept of just war within various Christian traditions. Can you talk about where this concept originated and what are the broad characteristics and basic arguments that have shaped it?
1: Sure. So um, the the just war tradition is, is a very broad tradition. Um, it has pre-Christian history. So the idea that military leaders and warriors must be just in some way um, predates Christianity in the West, uh, everywhere, and also uh, exists in other religious traditions. In Christianity, it begins, I would say the origins are in about the second or third century as Christians begin to grapple with the idea that the um, Christ isn't going to return immediately, that the reign of peace that they anticipated isn't going to immediately come about and begin to consider what their responsibilities are in the state. And of course, all his addresses in his letter to the Romans you need to be subject to the governing authorities. Um, and so the question of what exactly that means begins to really be addressed. And after the time of Constantine, when we begin to have a, a Christian empire in place, there comes to be a consensus that, well, of course, Christians have to fight in wars, but they're going to do it in a way that's moral and just. Um, Augustine writes about this in late fourth and early fifth centuries, and he's often credited with the beginnings of Christian just war theory. Um, There are a couple of different major elements of Christian just war theory, uh, beginning early in its history. So the first is referred to as use ad bellum, that is justifications for going to war. Are you defending yourself? Are you defending an innocent person? Things along those lines. And then there's also um, use in bello, which relates to justice during wartime. How do you treat other people? How do you conduct the war? So we have... In the Western tradition, a really extensive conversation about both sets of criteria. And this begins at the time of Augustine, continues through the medieval period, through the Reformation, and you can see arguments about all elements of just war theory at the Society of Christian Ethics today and in other within Christian denominations and scholarly organizations. So it's a very live issue. Issue.
0: Uh, And where does orthodoxy and specifically Russian orthodoxy fit into the uh, framework?
1: So this is this is the big and I would say really unresolved kind of complicated question um, that orthodoxy seems to run in a separate trajectory. Right. And I would also say that I'm not sure that I can make any statements about anything other than Russian orthodoxy. Um, There are many other forms of orthodoxy that are shaped by their own uh, geographic contexts and places and times. And so I would say that even though you see similarities, you see within the orthodox tradition, this idea that warriors can be just, um, warriors are good, warriors are motivated to serve God and so forth, that you don't get the same kind of consistent, longstanding theological um, conversation around just war theory. Now, that's not to say that that Orthodox thinkers don't don't talk about it, but it it doesn't it doesn't exist as a um, sort of cohesive tradition in the same sense that it does in the West.
0: Uh, And did Orthodox Russian Orthodox theologians draw at all on Western just war theory specifically in relation to the Russo-Japanese War?
1: Yes. Yeah, so when we when we get into um, specific theologians um, and uh, you you know I will I occasionally ran across references to historical Christian conversations about war um, references to Western thinkers it wasn't that prominent. In fact, I was trying to remember examples of this and I couldn't I couldn't pin down any. But I, there was. Certainly by the late 19th century, Russian thinkers were familiar with the Western tradition, but um, I did not see them really engaging with it in the way that Western thinkers, I think, would have engaged with one another.
0: Uh, Now to shift uh, to the the situation specifically, can you give us some background on missionary efforts of the Russian Orthodox Church during that time period in the mid to late 19th century, and specifically the origins of the missionary efforts in Japan?
1: Okay, yeah, let me, um, yeah, sorry, I had another thing I was going to say, but I think I will move on to that. So, yeah, the, so I want to start with, so the missionary efforts in Japan relate to the fact that Japan had been closed off to other countries since the early 17th century. Um, Japan briefly had an experiment with Christianity, call it, um, and then eventually that was banned in 1614. A couple hundred years later, the United States wanted to establish trade with Japan, um, and Japan began to conclude treaties with a lot of different other nations including Russia. So that's when both uh, Western missionary efforts in Japan and Russian missionary efforts in Japan get started. Now, Russia at this point is engaged in a couple of different kinds of missions. And I would say more than anything, Russia was engaged in uh, what were called external missions. Um, the t- Terms are a little confusing. I think I'm taking these from Paul Worth's book, The Tsar's Foreign Faiths. Um, and but the idea is that there were many people who were not Christian in Russia or the lands near Russia, right? The sort of at uh, the um at the borders of Russia. So Russia was used to missionizing, the Orthodox Church was used to missionizing, or at least working with Buddhists. Um, in uh, Buryatia and Kalmykia uh muslims along the south right so there were there were there was missionary work going on of that sort um during the 19th century um, the the orthodox mission to japan is um a little bit different i'm mean, much much smaller scale um and it starts and i i think i'm maybe moving ahead in, in your questions but i think this, this sort of comes naturally um it starts in the 1860s um and the there is a be, although the um the japanese are prohibiting christianity um being proselytized at that point um they're allowing christians to come in as diplomats or as merchants and of course they're allowing them to practice their religion and so Both Russia and other countries sort of sneak some clergy in. I mean, it's not really sneaking. They're they're allowed to do it. But once the clergy are there, they begin to reach out to the Japanese. And what happens with the Russian Orthodox mission is that there's a young man um, who has become known as Nikolai of Japan who goes there. Um, He's a young man. He's just been ordained. He goes to Japan, he learns the language, he learns the culture, he fully immerses himself in understanding this, what to him is a very strange, unusual land. He's extraordinarily bright, he learns to speak the language very well, and um, and he begins to um, proselytize, although well, I would say in very minor ways, right? He's, um, but very quickly, and this happens in the next couple of decades, right, the 1860s, the 1870s, you have um, Christians of all sorts, different Protestant denominations, the Orthodox, the Catholics reaching out to various people in Japan, and you have uh, Japanese people converting. Um, so so that's that's where the Russian mission to japan gets gets started.
0: And how did that fit into the way that the Russian Church saw its role in Asia as a whole? There is,
1: um, and at least, you know, there is this sense that Christianity is bound to expand, right? Christianity is, is orthodox, the orthodox form of Christianity for Russians is, is the perfect form of Christianity. And it's going to necessarily expand throughout the world. Um, and so although this isn't, a motive for the war, the war in 1904, which begins in, in uh, the beginning of 1904. The war is fought over territory. There's It's not a holy war. It's not a religious war in any way at the start. But almost immediately, as you begin to get into the war, as the war is declared, or even before the war is declared, you have people starting to talk about how natural it would be for Russia to go into Japan and convert it to Christianity. And so that, that notion, and I I compare it at some point to to manifest destiny, right? That's this idea that, um, you know, in the United States, we thought uh, people a couple hundred years thought, well, it's natural for Christianity to expand and get rid of these heathen Native Americans, right? Or Indians. Um, And, Similarly, there's just a sort of condescending attitude towards people of other faiths that naturally our religion is superior. And so if people are exposed to it, um, then they'll accept it. Or even, you know, maybe they have to be pushed a little bit. Right. Maybe God's going to help us by, um, you know, granting us a military victory there and then we'll be in charge and then people will naturally be drawn to uh, Orthodox Christianity.
0: At the beginning of the war, what was the status of the church um, in Japan and how was Russia in general perceived?
1: So the the status of the church in Japan was was quite good. The Orthodox Church. Nikolai, as I said, was um, very a very learned man. And he was also careful about his proselytizing. He was well aware. And I know this from a a, a report that he put together for um, the government in 1869, was well aware of the problems that proselytizing has co- had caused in Japan and how it led to the expulsion of Christians in the early 1600s. So he knew that history. So he tried to engage people on an intellectual level, tried to um, sort of be present, uh, be part of the Japanese society, but stand apart as as a Christian. And he he contrasted himself sometimes to some of the Protestants, some of the Catholics, uh, who, were, who were pushier, or at least who fought were pushier.
0: Um,
1: so he was, he was fairly successful. Um, by 1900, just to give you a, a few statistics, um, there were about, the estimate is about 430,000 Christians in Japan out of a population of 44.8 million. Um, the Orthodox were a small number, about 26,000 there were at that time 376 Japanese Orthodox priests. So um, while it started, well, he, he, he was primarily in, in Tokyo for most of that period. Um, he fundraised to build a cathedral in Tokyo, uh, which was dedicated in 1891, uh, distinctive Orthodox architecture. So this was, and actually it was um, received support by an admiral, an old friend of his called, uh, named Stefan Makarov, um, who served as an admiral in the Russo-Japanese War. So so there was a church, there were uh, Orthodox Christians, um, Japanese Orthodox Christians, they were spread throughout the countryside. Um, and, and as I said, he was in, uh, in Tokyo and, and quite re- well respected at that time.
0: Could you talk a little bit more about the key church leaders in Japan during the war, um, specifically how they approached their missionary efforts prior to the war and how that changed uh, when the war began?
1: Okay, yeah, sure. So so Nikolai, um, really the only Russian we have in Japan who's part of the Japanese Orthodox Church is Nikolai. Um, The diplomatic corps leaves. He uh, does not have... um, Russians with him at the church at that time. There are occasionally people who come in, but uh, there is a, um, an essay or a section of an essay that he says something like here. I am the only Russian. And he feels quite isolated while he is, um, while he is there. Um, the, so, so Nikolai is convinced that um it is appropriate for his Japanese congregation to fight in the war that their country has declared. He has asked I mean the reason that he stays, the reason that he's only the only Russian there, or one of very, very few Russians uh, in in Japan at that time, is that his congregation says, "We want you to stay. You are our leader, we respect you, we honor you. they have a vote." Um, the day after war, the war is declared, and they meet separately from him. And then they come to them and the, him. They say, "We want you to stay." And he says, um, "You know that gives me great joy. I'm happy to remain here. Um, I'm not going to participate in public prayers because that would mean that I would be praying from for for your emperor, and people would either say that I'm a traitor. I'm praying to the Japanese for the ap- Japanese emperor." Success of the Japanese Empire, or I'm a hypocrite. Secretly, I'm wishing that the Japanese will be defeated, but I really don't believe that, right? So he's not going to do that, but he is happy to remain. And he says that love of country is natural and holy, and that this is something that Christ himself supported. And so he tells the Japanese his Japanese congregation, "You go ahead and you fight for your country. That's what good Christian patriots do. And I will pray for my country, Russia. And that's the way he sees what's the situation of the war at that time. Like I said, there's there are no other Russians there in the country that that." Uh, make comments about this or are there to, to observe.
0: Uh, and you, uh, most of the, or a lot of the information that you got about sort of his day-to-day uh, feelings and ideas about the war came from his personal writings, right? The letters and the diaries. Could you talk a little bit more about those?
1: Sure. Sure. So, so Nikolai, um, so this was, this was a great find for me when I uh, ran across this after I was maybe a year or two into the project Um I guess maybe a year because I read somebody else's diary for, for a while too, one of the chaplains. Um, but he he was a very good diarist. He he wrote almost every day um, and he made substantial entries in his diary. He talked about um, what was going on in the city. He talked about what was going on in his church. He talked about statements that he made. He talked about what people came, you know, problems that people came to him with. Um, so it was very extensive. And um, so the, there may be, I don't know, 300 pages of that diary that I translated. And the whole, there's a five-volume uh, collection of it in the Library of Congress. And I, I was able to go there and, and scan uh, quite a bit of that in. Um, I also uh, had the help of a Russian Orthodox priest in the United States, uh, Father John Bartholomew, who has been researching him. Uh, for his own work uh has spent time in tokyo and and is is very familiar with him so there were a number of letters uh there have been collections in Russian of some of his letters of uh, some other writings of his this this report to the um the government and and various other things like that over the years so so I felt like I had a pretty good sense of of what he was thinking about and feeling while he um while he was going through that process, the uh, the diary hasn't been translated into English, and so um, that was I felt like a, a valuable resource to use to give you a window into um, this particular case.
0: Uh, now, to talk a little bit about the Russian soldiers who were serving in Japan, did you get a sense from your research of their religious practice and whether Orthodoxy played a role in their day to day lives or their self understanding of what they were doing there?
1: So um, it's it's hard to generalize right to there were um, something like 35,000 soldiers killed uh, or maybe more than that maybe uh, really hundreds of thousands serving and so my research was really um, more of a, a kind of case study uh, analysis rather than trying to generalize across the board about the lives of of Russian soldiers um, but I was able to find, some descriptions of a variety of different kinds of religious activities Um, before the departure uh, of soldiers, there would be services that um, priests would hold to send them off. So for example, there was one in um, Omsk in April of 1904, where you have a bishop performing a prayer service outside in a field for troops that are about to be dispatched, um, giving them icons, singing holy songs, um, and uh, calling upon them to bravely go forth for faith, czar, and fatherland. You have, in addition to those services prior to going off to war, you have um, priests doing services on the train. Uh, there's a one of the priests that I um, read about put together a shrine to have on the train and did services at railway stations uh, on the way out to the front. And then you have um, priests conducting services in the field once they get there. Um, there is an example of a priest who is uh, leading soldiers on a retreat from battle, holding up a cross. Uh, There are actually several different reports on exactly how that happened. Um, So the priests are clearly right there in in the thick of it. Um, Now, in terms of the specific practices of individuals, I I wasn't able to identify um, much specifically on that. But it's clear that um, the priests were concerned, were talking to the soldiers about their spiritual well-being, were giving them sermons, were regularly um, conducting liturgy with them. Um, so it seemed to be an active part of their uh, lives out in the field.
0: Of course, it's, it's extremely difficult. Probably one of the most difficult things in studying religion, right, is figuring out what the actual sort of day-to-day practices were and how people feel unless you have everyone's diary.
1: Yeah and I mean I, I did like you know because I I did find one one diary of a a soldier and I'd hoped that that would have more than it did and and it just there just wasn't a lot of material. They the best material from that actually was that the soldier was captured and was a POW and so I was able to um get a report that he had of a Japanese orthodox priest meeting with the Russian POWs. And so that was that was interesting. But yeah, but the actual day-to-day practice of the of the ordinary soldier kind of hard to to pin down.
0: Uh now did you get the sense that there was any tension or disagreement about the war between the churchmen who were on the ground in Japan versus the ones who were back in Russia?
1: Well, so the the and the war the so the churchmen are At the front, they're not in Japan typically. Although they were, if they were, cat. I mean, the war was was not fought in Japan, but um, the so the where the church, the I would say the priests on the ground um, were very supportive of their um, their charges, right? The the people that they that they served, the soldiers, Um, and in general, I didn't find a lot of tension between um, most of the um most of the clergy uh or the religious leaders uh, the vast majority of people supported the war some were more gung ho than others some emphasized more the whole notion of we're fighting against these uh, according to one uh, phrase used crafty asiatic heathen right some some really emphasized that element of it some others just emphasized, okay, you're a soldier, you fight, and that's good because, you know, you're serving your country and God approves of that. So so there, was, there, were, there were different levels of enthusiasm for the war and different ways of casting it, but there was very little opposition to participation in the war itself. Um, so you have the support, I mean, and I have examples in the book of all sorts of statements issued from theological academies, from bishops, um, articles published talking about how the war was just because Japan hadn't followed certain procedures, uh, had done, you know, engaged in an attack, unprovoked, things like that. So, so, yeah, I would say in general, there was a, a pretty consistent um, level of support the war, regardless of whether the chap between the chaplains in the field and the people um, in authority in the church at home.
0: Now, as we move forward historically and defeat seems increasingly likely for Russia, um, you write that Orthodox discourse around the war increasingly shifts. So from patriotic duty to a discourse of divine retribution. Uh, could you talk about the shift and what its consequences were?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, we have, um, Uh, a number of people blaming the lack of or blaming the Russia's failures on its lack of true religion. So there's a a blaming in some cases of the intelligentsia um, movement away from true faith, true good old orthodoxy, right? Um, and so you have a number of of priests or religious leaders suggesting that that that's that's why this this failure is occurring and um nikolai also says this um he is um saying and this is uh actually still in 1904 the the losses start pretty quickly um and he says um, the Japanese are killing us all nations hate us Lord God evidently your anger is pouring out on us and how could it be otherwise? why would you love us and show us generosity through the centuries our nobility has become depraved and has been corrupted to the core simple people for centuries were oppressed by the condition of serfdom and made unfaithful and then talks about bribery in the military class and The upper class is a collection of apes, and they're adoring the European countries. Um, And he says, despite all that, we have the highest opinions of ourselves. We alone are true Christians. Uh, Alone, we have genuine enlightenment. He's sort of mocking that idea. He says, no, that's, that's why these misfortunes come crashing down on Russia. She alone has brought them on herself. So, And that's an attitude that I see not only with, in this case, Nikolai of Japan, but other Orthodox church leaders as things progress. Um, Whereas very early on in the war, the attitude is, well, of course, we're going to succeed. God is on our side. And then as the defeats pile up and pile up, it's, of course, we're losing. God is punishing us. We just need to be better Christians.
0: Now, as this discussion kind of heats up in the Russian press and in Russian intellectual circles, what role did the non-ecclesiastical religious thinkers play? For example, Solovyov and Tolstoy in this discussion around the war on militarism.
1: So um, so Tolstoy is one of the sort of the, uh, maybe the main lone pacifist voice for um, in, in the middle of this war. Um, so He is, uh, he is going to look at this war and say, wow, this is, you know, this is exactly the opposite of what Christian love calls for. Um, And, and this is uh, one of the things he says is is an article that actually is published in in English uh, in London, I believe. And he says to love one's enemies the japanese the chinese those yellow people towards whom benighted men are now endeavoring to excite our hatred to love them means not to kill them um and he says there are all sorts of innocent good religious christians who are being told who are being who are being forced into this religious fraud right that the government is saying of course you should fight this is the good christian thing to do but that obviously is not the case, Tolstoy says, right? That's totally the wrong way of thinking about the question. Now, Solovyov, by this point, I believe he, he dies before the beginning of the war, but his um his perspective on the military is very much picked up by some thinkers on the war um during this period. So I spent a little bit of time in the book talking about his uh, work, Three Conversations, which is published in 1900, and that work, in fact, is is quoted by at least one of the uh, authors in the theological journals that I that I looked at. And Solovyov basically says, um, you know, that that there is such a thing as a Christ-loving military. This is a term that shows up a lot in conversations about the war, a Christ-loving military, this notion of a a holy host of warriors supported by God. Um, And Solovyov in in Three Conversations quotes uh, a a person called the General, right? It's a work that has a number of fictional characters. They're all having conversations about a variety of different things. And he says... Um, that he was rejoicing in defeating enemies who had harmed innocent people, um, that he sees this as a joyous and religious experience, that when you kill people who have been persecuting or harming innocent people, that that is the highest duty of the Christian. And so his his sort of take on that is picked up by um, people who support the Russo-Japanese War.
0: Uh, and was there any other sort of uh, pacifist or anti-war Christian movements, um, independent sort of, or apart from Tolstoy's followers?
1: Not that I ran across. Um, I mean, he is—he is so vilified in the press. It's as if—I mean—you run across criticisms of Tolstoy everywhere. Nikolai has them. You see them in lots of the theological journals. Um, he is just—he is such a prominent figure. That um, I mean, there may have been other pacifists around, um, but I I certainly didn't see any kind of major treatment of them the way that I saw with Tolstoy.
0: Um, And apart from Orthodox, did any other Russian Christian groups have a place in the patriotic discourse around the war?
1: Um, You know, I I wasn't able to track down this reference. I believe that there are um, Protestant Christian groups that express support for it. Um but I don't I don't remember for sure, actually. I I, I um feel like I ran across that, but I, I don't recall right.
0: Now. Um, can you talk about a little bit of the criticism that Russia received from other Christian groups around the world for this military action in Japan? Sure. So
1: I mean one of the one of the interesting things is that you have um you have the Russian Orthodox Church in Japan competing with a lot of different Protestant churches, um, and I would say to a lesser extent, Catholic, Roman Catholic churches that are based in, in the West, that are based in Western countries. And so the, the Japanese Christians that aren't Russian Orthodox blame Russia for the war. And I think that they, in some respect, influence the way that Christian churches back home, right? So these are Japanese missionaries, Japanese, you know, American missionaries to Japan, or British missionaries to Japan. That they kind of cast this as um, the Russians are, um, you know, medieval crusaders who say that Christianity is on their side, but obviously it's not, and Japan is is the uh, the victim in this war. So you do get some some connections. The, the the churches that are connected to missionary groups seem to, to seem to suggest that um, Russian Orthodox Christianity is is not real Christianity, right? That the Russians are just sort of exploiting Christianity and using it as a reason to fight the war and a justification for the war, but that Russian Orthodox Christianity is is
0: the so Kind of the traditional argument against the Russian Orthodox Church as a really a political institution rather than a religious one. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so how did the loss of the war impact the perception of the church, both in Japan and in Russia?
1: So in Japan, actually, um, the loss of the war doesn't seem to have hurt the Russian Orthodox Church. And I think that's largely due to the respect for Nikolai, the fact that the vast majority of the um, the Orthodox Church in Japan were Japanese citizens, and in fact, Japanese citizens who fully supported the war effort. Um, whether it, sometimes they, you know, participated by helping out the POWs, but they also fought in the war. And I have um, in my introduction to the book uh, a description of Nikolai performing a uh, Panahita memorial service for two Japanese soldiers orthodox Christians who died during the war and he just, he says that he uh, that that these are his spiritual children and he says during the course of the service he says you with brotherly love i with the love of the father carry warm supplications to god that he will impute to them their strivings and death undertaken by them in fulfillment of their duties to the fatherland and state as martyrs, holy deeds and reward them with the kingdom of heaven. So what he's saying is these Japanese soldiers should be put into the kingdom of heaven, should, should be granted the kingdom of heaven. They are martyrs, right? It doesn't matter to him that they were fighting against his state. And so, so Christians in Japan, I mean, Russian Orthodox Christians in Japan were specifically saying, right? we can fight this war too. This is our war too. So they clearly try to delineate that. So as a result, right? Nikolai says at the end of the war that um, although he's very depressed about Russia losing the war, that the, one of the good things that comes out of it is what he says, the, the little ship survives, right? That Russia experiences all these horrible military defeats, including a, a, a naval uh, defeat, but that the Russian Orthodox Church in Japan has survived. And so he feels very good about that. He stays in Japan. He's, he dies in 1912. Um, the emperor sends a wreath to his funeral, something that was very unusual at that time. So there is there's very little downside to uh, the Japanese, the Russian Orthodox Church in Japan as a result of the
0: war. And is there an Orthodox uh, presence in Japan today? Yes, there is. Yes,
1: there continues to be um, the fact I I, uh, I have not been there, but I know people who, who have been, and there is the the Holy Resurrection Cathedral that he built was destroyed, but then rebuilt, and it's still referred to as Nicolaido, which is basically Nikolai's house. So apparently, at least according to one thing I read, maybe it's apocryphal. You can get into a cab. In Japan and the Tokyo airport, and say, you want to go to Nikoraido, and that's, and they'll take you to the Holy Resurrection Cathedral. Um, that's the
0: place. Uh, and as far as for, did you find in your research that the loss of the war had a negative impact on religious belief uh, in Russia or just faith in imperial institutions in general?
1: Well, you know, this is a, I mean, that's a hard call to make, right? There was so much going on in Russia at this time. Um, so distinguishing, I think, between the effects of the war. Um, the effects of the nineteen oh five revolution and the relationship between those two things and how it all feeds into the events of nineteen seventeen um I mean I think you know the the military defeat was was crushing it was something that that was very impactful and because the rhetoric at the beginning of the war was well, of course God is on our side, we're going to be able to win this war um I, I would suspect, um, that, you know, that, that played into a number of people's concerns about, um, you know, bizarre and, and the, the power of the, um, you know, the institution of the church, of, of everything, um, the, the combination, as you said, of, of the church and, and the state, um but i think it's i think it's hard to to separate out the different things that were were going on at the time.
0: Um do you see any elements of the Just war rhetoric that was developed during this time uh in action in contemporary russian militarism?
1: Yes, you know, i think um there uh, there is uh there have been references um by patriarch uh, Tikhon to Holy War uh, to this term, the Christ-loving military, which, as I mentioned, appeared quite frequently during the um, the Russo-Japanese War, um, and in particular, he he talks uh, in 2016, and this is this is when I completed my book and I was pulling together some of these ideas. I'm not a, not a specialist on contemporary Orthodoxy by any means, but but that he does say that the war on terrorism, for example, is a holy war, um, that this is a war. And and holy war um, is, is not always clearly distinguishable from just war. Uh, this is kind of a complicated question if you look at sort of the history of just war theory. So it's not simply we're fighting this war because we want to spread our religion, but we're fighting this war because our religion requires us to battle against evil, right? And so where there is evil in the world, Christians need to support the military efforts or to support any kind of efforts, but including uh, military efforts, um, to uh,
0: to defeat that evil. And I think this this book is actually very timely. Um, and this interview is very timely, because just in the last month, there's been a controversy with, within the modern Russian Orthodox Church about whether or not the church should continue to bless missiles, uh, which is something they've been doing, I think, for the last decade or so. So it's a, it's a discussion that's absolutely continuing. Just to wrap up, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Well, um, at the moment, I'm
1: mainly focused on, um, my teaching. Um, but I have spent a little bit of time looking at, um, the role of the clergy in the 1905 revolution. Um, so this is uh, obviously, as I said, you know, you've got a lot of things going on at the same time. And so the fact that you have a, uh, clergy member, Father Gapon involved in that, that, uh, conflict, is, and, and I've done, but I'm really just sort of scratching the surface of the research on that. Um, but the, that there's that. And then there are also other clergy members who are expressing concerns about clerical participation in, in revolutionary movements. Um, so that's a direction that, that I might uh, be taking in the future.
0: Thanks. So today we've been speaking with Dr. Betsy Parabo of Western Illinois University about her 2017 book Russian Orthodoxy and the Russo-Japanese War, now available from Bloomsbury Academic. Dr. Parabo, thank you very much again for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. It's
1: very interesting.